Hi, Mary. How are you doing? Did you have a good bank holiday weekend? Get any sun down there in Winchester? Yeah, the phrase sunny Winchester didn't really hold true this weekend just gone, I'm afraid. It was just feels like the weather's been a bit rubbish, hasn't it? It wasn't amazing over Easter. It wasn't amazing for this bank holiday. But but yeah, I had a really good time. We had a christening in London on Saturday and then spent a couple of days just being at home, which is so rare for us at the moment that it was just really nice. It was really satisfying, but I also was like, have I actually just done this on my bank holiday? I cleared out our garden shed. Oh, so that can be very satisfying. I agree. That's that's it's, it's a worthy pursuit, if ever there was one. Indeed, indeed. How about you, Dan? Did you get away for the bank holiday? We did. We got to Norfolk, actually, which is lovely. Been there a couple of times now. Not, not sort of regular regulars, but been there a couple of times. Very nice. Weather was beautiful, actually. A lot of sun, got on the beach. Little Leo got to have a little oh, run man, around I'm the jealous. beach. He, he's, yeah, he seemed to love it. So um, yeah, that was all good. It was all good. And I have to say, one thing that I'm learning about Norfolk, some very beautiful stonework you tend to find there. Some, some of the very old properties, <laughs> lots of properties. Yeah. Beautiful walls, just some very nice pieces of wall. I don't know if this is one of those things that you acquire a greater appreciation for as you get older. I feel like I seem to be saying, goodness me, that's Perhaps. a beautiful building more than I than I used to maybe I think yeah maybe the beautiful building thing I can get but when you said beautiful stonework I was wondering yeah quite how far you were going to go with that with that one but you know each to their own <laughs> that's that's fine and what, so what kind of age buildings are these these are super super ancient or Victorian type well some of them are well they're much older than that I think I mean so the, the, there's a history there in the sort of the early Anglo-Saxon period I think the sort of post-Roman empire almost so the sort of 800 year 800 kind of thing is what is there's a huge amount of history of that area sort of in that period of time which um read a little bit about and call myself an expert obviously but i think some, some of it dates back that far so um love a good bit of bricks and mortar and of course um speaking of which this week's episode see, see what i did there um <laughs> talk, talking real assets i think the anglo-saxons were particularly into their infrastructure by the way as well so we can maybe talk about that but um yeah this week's episode i guess we'll cover both then yeah <laughs> on with the episode Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Today, we are talking investing in real assets. And joining us for that conversation, a repeat guest, delighted to say, it's LCP's Head of Real Assets Research, Andy Jacobson. Andy, welcome back. Hi, Dan, Mary. Nice to join the podcast again. Welcome back, Andy. I feel like your role probably doesn't need very much introduction, to be honest, given we've had you on a a couple of times and it's fairly self-explanatory. I wonder if, though, we do return to the what's one thing we should know about you that wouldn't be on your CV. I think last time you were on, you talked about running. That was the latest hobby that you'd got really into. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, I'd been running for a while, but unfortunately last year I managed to pick up a bit of an injury, which has sort of put a bit of pay to my sort of running career. So I've actually taken up a new hobby slightly more terrifying <laughs> so a bit of mountain biking but the sort of downhill variety right so going up to the top of the hill and basically i call it controlled falling <laughs> <laughs> really based on my ability level <laughs> but it's good fun the only issue i think is that i live in london it's not a lot of hills sadly so <laughs> so it's getting out other parts of the country wales very good a lot of hills and mountain biking out there so there's a new skill to learn and yeah pretty exciting hopefully I don't hurt myself too badly (laughs) yeah I've never tried that and it yeah terrifying is the word that comes to mind for me as well I have to say 
I feel like so it's one of those things that I think when you're a kid you, you don't have that fear and then yeah as time goes on I just feel like I'm increasingly less likely to give it a go. I think the difference is that when you fall it hurts more when you're so I try not to fall let's just say and I think I yeah you're a little bit more reserved but yeah it, it's definitely exciting and it, it definitely takes you away from your day-to-day definitely a good way to de-stress. <laughs> Yeah, I can't imagine there's much scope to think about much else when you're just trying to focus on that narrow little path and the steep hill and but trying to stay vaguely upright. It's Absolutely. Kind of... Sort of the opposite of mindfulness, I think. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. Okay. All right, Andy. So we've got you here to talk about real assets. You've been on a couple of times before. So just maybe just refer listeners back to previous conversations, what we've talked about, global property before, haven't we? We've talked about, I think, infrastructure before as well. We'll put links to those in the show notes. Obviously, we're here middle of 2022. No secret to say that inflation is on everyone's radar, big issue. How are you thinking about real assets generally in the context of sort of this inflation environment we're in? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Dan. And I think, you know, really every investor should be thinking about how inflation impacts their investments. I think the good thing with real assets is there's a lot of features related to that investment that offer some protection against inflation. And that's across infrastructure, particularly and, and to some extent real estate as well. Some characteristics, I think, to bring out. I think the big one is the revenue streams often have an explicit or implicit link to inflation. So let's just look at some infrastructure, for example. Utility company has the regulated ability to pass through inflation to the businesses or the consumers that use the utility. Contracted assets often have, I think in contracted power or concession-based toll road, have inflation uplift linked within the, the future revenue stream. And that's, that's sort of pre-contracted. But e- even economic infrastructure, think of a port, it's monopolistic, really high barrier to entry. So it's got a lot of pricing power. Within infrastructure particularly, I mean, the mechanisms, the regulatory framework, the way revenues work are very different and inflation can be explicit or implicit, but I think it just advocates an approach by to, to diversify to try and protect against inflation. I think the same works a little bit with property. I think the mechanisms to capture inflation are a little bit different in the revenue. So you have a lease term, but often over that lease term, the ability to increase the rent. So in the UK, you know, perhaps every five years. In Europe, leases are inflation linked already. And so you can capture inflation in that manner. A lot of our clients actually like longer lease property investments and the real traction there is, of course, you enter into a long, long-term long lease with a strong tenant, corporate tenant or government-backed over 20 years or more. But there's inflation uplifts over the period of that lease in a lot of the cases. So so a lot of the revenue streams are, are protected against inflation. I think that's really, really quite a nice feature of real asset investments if you are concerned about inflation. I think the other thing to say is that I guess it also depends about the broader environment. I mean, I think if you look at the sort of empirical data, if inflation high and there's growth, then it's actually a really good time to invest in real assets. Think of a property in a growth environment, there's a lot more demand for the underlying property and so there's more scope to actually negotiate with tenants, increase the rents. Same with infrastructure where there's perhaps more demand for the for the utility, the electricity, and so the scope to grow. And certainly if you look at the data, returns in that environment for all real assets are pretty strong. But even in a low growth environment, actually that inflation protection within the revenue is actually quite highly valued. And the data shows that returns are pretty reasonable even in a high inflation, low growth environment. 
Can I just challenge a little bit there? Because because one interpretation of what you're saying is, you know, infrastructure investing is great because you can jack up rents and you can sort of jack up people's electricity prices and you can kind of kind of profit from that. It's obviously a very sensitive topic at the moment, quite rightly, with sort of the cost of living and stuff. How are you seeing investors sort of navigate that or managers navigating that difficult challenge around those sort of questions? Yeah, I mean, obviously within the utility companies, it's obviously regulated, right? So they're setting their revenue new streams on what is permitted by the regulator. I absolutely agree, though, there's a cost of living crisis. You know, the affordability of basic utilities is, is becoming more and more challenged. It could be the case that there is going to be more political pressure on regulators to address that and consider whether that that model works, particularly if high inflation is persistent. But where I go back to Dan, honestly, is it goes back to that diversification. You know, if you have a, a strong diversified portfolio with lots of different kinds of infrastructure assets where your end users are a mixture of consumers, but largely businesses, I think there is more scope to diversify that inflation risk. Think of renewable energy, for example, you know, what what's happening is ultimately energy prices are going up. And if the wind's blowing and you're generating energy, you're benefiting from that, providing that protection. So there are a lot of features across a lot, a lot of real assets which have that mechanism. But I, as I say, I always advocate diversification across it and it's the best way to protect your portfolio from any potential damaging effects of high inflation. So diversification, of course, makes a lot of sense in that context. Are there any areas within real assets, I guess, either thinking about sort of more property or or thinking about infrastructure that you think would be particularly vulnerable to a persistent high inflation environment, potentially a stagflation type environment where we don't see that growth coming through? I suspect those assets that are more exposed to discretionary spending. It's really hard to be generic about assets because, you know, we, we have a global approach and revenue mechanisms across different assets across different countries completely vary but economic infrastructure airport thinking as an, an example where there's an only an element of the income that is that is regulated obviously there's income streams from airlines and that sort of environment perhaps people are flying less that's a bit more of a challenge a lot of the revenue stream from an airport comes from retail again discretionary spending less people traveling that's but so there are definitely are risks within individual assets but real assets are by their nature really idiosyncratic and managers the funds that we like manage that risk just by trying to put their eggs in as many baskets as they can and in the whole provide that sort of overall protection. Yeah, because that's one thing that's always struck me when I've got involved in this and looked at it for clients is just how different those regimes are around the world. And like you say, in some in some worlds, in some worlds, in some countries, you've got <laughs> you've got toll roads operating a certain way, you've got ports operating a certain way. In some, the revenues are go up and down with activity. In other cases, they're, they're just very fixed because the government just will pay certain levels. And it is difficult to sort of just generalize across it and, and take one example. You, know, you say airports, clearly that has challenges potentially, but you can't necessarily map that across to other sectors actually could be very different across other sectors. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, the thing is, just thinking about an airport, right, fundamentally, it's a well-established core infrastructure asset, established business model, been around for years, notwithstanding, obviously, the challenges with energy transition, I'm sure we'll come on to that later, but it definitely fits in that, within that core bucket. No one could foresee COVID and clearly the impact that had on airports was material. And were you a core investor holding only airports going into that strategy, fine, I, you know, I've pretty, got pretty confidence here, but then this, this big unforeseen event happens and suddenly you're, you've got some significant challenges managers diversifying through that were able to ride that out so i mean airports fell 15 20 percent in unlisted world more so enlisted but across the diversified portfolio we saw over the you know over 2020 for example 
the diversified infrastructure funds that a lot of our clients use actually produce a positive return in really challenging environments, reflecting the fact that diversified income streams, a lot of the income across lots of businesses is inelastic. You know, people still need to use the essential services provided by infrastructure, even through these really challenging periods, even through global downturns. And that's one of the great features of it, but captured best if you diversify. Yeah. Andy, you mentioned the energy transition and sort of climate change theme. Should we move there now? So how are you thinking, again, sort of how are you thinking about real assets in the context of the energy transition? And I suppose relatively recently we had the government's new energy security strategy. So what sort of impact is that having on our thinking at this point? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really big topic, right? (laughs) And I think probably where I'm spending most of my time in terms of research and engagement with managers because I think within real assets there's a lot of work that is going on and it's good to see the managers are are taking this seriously but there's a lot of work left to do so I mean I just looking at the fundamental problem right so real assets we're talking about tangible hard assets part of the built economy they use a lot of energy for their operations and you know they're using they're burning fossil fuels to actually for that energy so clearly if we're going to achieve net zero by 2050, addressing that issue is, is going to be a significant challenge for all managers that own real assets. So if you just think about real estate, there's this interesting stat out there that something like 70-80% of buildings that exist today will be around in 2050. So the answer I don't think can be knocking down buildings, building brand new shiny ones that are energy efficient with the solar panel on the top. I think the answer is actually managing those buildings and, and managing through the transition. So that's improving the the framework of the building to improve energy efficiency. It's moving to renewable energy sources. It's integrating renewable solar panels, perhaps by building them in. It's the tenant engagement bit that's making sure they're using the building fishy. That is a lot of the story about reducing carbon emissions and how I think about climate change in the context of real assets. And of course, this is really important. I think two big risks, I think, you know, for all real assets, property and infrastructure, one is transition risk. So all these assets are going to exist through the points of the transition. And and if not managed correctly, there's a risk they become obsolete or stranded or just unused. A building might not attract tenants to the extent it's less sort of compatible with the climate future if that's not managed correctly. The other big one is physical risk. So these are tangible assets. So the risk of flooding, the risk of extreme weather events, be it heat or cold those are factors to really think about um, in the context of climate risk and a lot of the work and conversations i've been having is how managers are addressing those specific challenges how they're looking to manage those risks over time within the assets that they own andy before we move to infrastructure just thinking through what you've just been saying do you see opportunities as a result of this so for example is it that once these so clearly there's costs involved in retrofitting something that's more energy efficient, for example, within a property that already exists. Does that then lead follow through to higher rent because there will be lots of demand for energy efficient buildings? Or is it actually a cost that we just need to accept and it affects the returns and then we move on? It's a really good question, Mary. I, I think that is the opportunity. I mean, the opportunity is getting the asset management correct to make the building attractive to tenants and we're already when I speak to managers today and this has changed remarkably quickly they say to me that for offices particularly and there's a lot of there's a lot of structural themes but one of the key things that corporate tenants are talking to them about is how does the building align with their own net zero strategy and clearly to the extent that corporates are really looking to 
manage their own operations and are, are being really reflective on their own carbon emissions, the building that they use, which they have a big influence on, largely because they can decide which building is a big factor and, and managers are increasingly seeing those buildings which are the right side, more energy efficient, better energy ratings, better amenitized, more attractive to corporate tenants because it aligns with their own corporate policy. So that is the opportunity. But I, I do think for a lot, and particularly in the core kind of strategies that a lot of our clients use, it is the management, the asset management through the transition that is going to be key. But the, the one thing I'd say is that whilst this is a big systemic issue, it's obviously getting a lot of noise, lots of clients are worrying about it. In the context of property management, asset management is a key part of the skill set for property managers. They want to invest in buildings that are sustainable but attractive to their occupiers in the long term. This feature is becoming more prominent and so they're investing a lot in trying to build the frameworks and understand what they need to do to make buildings attractive for the future. But ultimately that's still part of the general skill set that they've they've got in terms of their asset management expertise. What do I need to do to make this building continue to be attractive to to occupiers and the revenue stream that I would like to achieve from it. And then on the infrastructure side, then I think Mary mentioned the government's new energy strategy. So how are you seeing that impact on the more the infrastructure side of the piece? Yeah. So before I go on to that, I mean, I think it's worth saying that the themes within infrastructure resonate. So I mean, the two two ways that I think infrastructure managers tackle climate risk is managing down emissions. So that's working with the management of infrastructure businesses to put in place a strategic plan to, first of all, reduce carbon emissions and carbon emissions in infrastructure are generally quite high, so extremely important. So that's built into the business case, the business plan. But the other one is, of course, how do I access the climate opportunities? What are the opportunities presented by the energy transition? And in practice, that means investments in clean power and supporting technologies that will enable us as economies to move to a lower carbon future. So what does that mean and how does that align with obviously the the security strategy? I mean, clearly the, the government wants and is promoting investment in green energy technologies. Now, a big part of that is going to be in green power. So what I mean is onshore wind, Offshore wind, particularly in the, in the UK, that seems to be the, the area that the government wants the most attention in terms of renewable energy. And then, of course, solar solar PV investments. Those are really the, the guts of what's driving the sort of green energy aspects of the, the security strategy. I think it's quite an interesting time for investors looking at renewable energy because what I've seen over the last, say, five, certainly 10 years, but you know, even over the last five years is what core investments within renewable energy look like. So looking five years ago, if you're going to access renewable energy, what that meant is you're buying a you know wind farm, onshore wind farm or a solar farm that is subsidized. So it's got this government-backed income stream, nice inflation linked, really, really attractive as an investment because you've got a lot of revenue certainty over a long-term period. But what we've seen over this period is yields coming down, firstly reflecting the, the cost of producing powers reduce significantly in this way and secondly just the high demand for that kind of attractive investment so there is a bit of style drift i guess within what you're seeing from renewable energy investment so what does it mean today well i think the subsidy regime in the uk has changed and altered it's not quite as as solid or not quite as clear as, as it was before and so i think there's a risk if you're entering into renewable energy of of energy price risk 
And so I think those managers that will be in favor are those that are able to contract revenue, certainly in the early life years of, of renewable energy investments through the government's contract for difference regime. That's, that's there and it's available. But I think increasingly through corporate power purchase agreements to provide that revenue certainty to attract long-term investors to deploy their capital. I think understanding energy markets is also really, really important, particularly because the lifespan of these assets is 25 years. So there comes a period even after your contracted revenue ends that you need to think about the impact of energy price markets. And we've already seen over the, the impact of last year of how volatile energy markets can be. So that's something I need th I think you need to think about. I think the other thing is that whilst I think operating assets are a key component of a core investment, I think construction is probably featuring a little bit more into the investment case. And I think I think that works. I mean, that's probably analogous with what we see in property, working with developers on predetermined contracts. So you're not actually taking the development construction risk, but ultimately you get a construction premium once the developer hands over the, the constructed asset to you in the portfolio and you're earning that revenue stream. So I think that's a little bit more of a feature turn, the returns that I think investors demand. But ultimately, I think the security strategy is just a nice, loud signal that more investment in renewables. Offshore wind is a really interesting one because they're really large assets, hugely overcompeted by the largest investors out there. And, you know, historically, we've not really seen the attractive enough yields to see lots of exposure in portfolios. But, you know, I think a good signal in signal there. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? We've seen that a lot of those assets very overcompeted, which has pushed down returns. So a big part of the signal is the supply hopefully coming to meet the demand might clear at a different return level or one that's maybe slightly better than where we've been for the last few years. Agreed. And I, I think the other thing that struck me when just going through the policy was I think there's we're seeing more signals to other transition technologies. So the electrification of economies over the next you know 10 20 years is going to be huge but you know electricity grids have to grow significantly if there's more renewable power generation then suddenly we're moving from quite a centralized grid to something that is a little bit more disparate so you need to be able to connect all that up together so there's a lot of opportunities there in electrification i think battery storage is another really interesting one and i know i know dan you've you've written some stuff about this battery storage is, an, is another technology i think which has, has to be integrated in the, the grid i think potentially even hydrogen in the future i think particularly with batteries and hydrogen, the technology exists, but the one thing that's lacking is a little bit of certainty about the revenue frameworks, the business policy risks. So at the moment, as standalone investments, they sit outside of, I think, what I put the core sphere. And I know a lot of work is going on to sort of bit more, give a bit more certainty on, on the frameworks, but I think gradually over time, they're actually going to fall into that that opportunity set where you can get access to those investments is probably taking more of a private equity style approach so owning a business that perhaps operates and develops renewable energy investments and obviously then integrating batteries hydrogen that kind of thing sort of falls out naturally because it's their business and it's part of their growth strategy and that's how i'm seeing clients access to sort of slightly more exciting newer areas within the core sphere and I suppose that was the thing that really struck me when you were speaking then, Andy, is how many different types of opportunity and how different those assets might be structured in the future. Do you see, and maybe you've half answered this question already, but do you see the skill set required to invest in infrastructure having significantly changed? I mean, even already, but also do you see it having to change in the future? Do the types of managers that we like, do they already have those skill sets? Are they, are they adding resource or are we looking for specialists? If I'm honest, Mary, it's a mixture of both. So, you know, I, I think and I don't want to harp on about it, but I, I like diversified portfolios. I think there's a great opportunity in client transition. But I think, you know, if you think 
of an electricity utility, a very established investment in a traditional core portfolio, electricity utilities are great investments because they need a lot of investment, but there's so much opportunity for them to grow due to the energy transition. They need to change the way that they generate their power, then they've got the ability to grow the grids essentially, and obviously earn the revenue streams from that. So the answer is established managers that perhaps have got longer term portfolios with legacy assets are adding these investments to their portfolios, either directly buying a, a large renewable platform, but also underneath the bonnets, investing in climate transition assets within established businesses. And so they do have the skills, expertise, but they are also adding adding to it. It's an evolving area. This is the energy transition. And, you know, I haven't even mentioned opportunities within the digital sphere. So, you know, telecommunications towers, data centers, that kind of thing. That's another opportunity set. These are new growing sectors. They are adding in the expertise to the extent they need it but they are praising it all on the same basis with their historic opportunity set. And I think if you're looking for an allocation, getting diversification across all those sectors is great. Obviously, you need to then challenge them on those slightly browner assets. What are the policy? What are their plans to go green? That said, you can take a more narrow focus. There are new, the newer funds that have been launched, which are more focused on these newer areas of energy transition and communications. I think there's a lot of opportunity on there. The trade-offs, of course, is you don't have a track record. Blind pool risk within unlisted investments is a really big factor. Early days, you're going to only have a handful of investment. You don't know what you're going to get. There are risks associated with that, even with the opportunity. And so that is ultimately the trade-off. You can sort of avoid the legacy assets and focus on the newer areas, but you have to accept that it's less diversified, smaller funds. What I like to do is provide options. And so we've got, we like managers that have much more diversified across all spheres, got managers focused on the new areas. And then we've got those that have really nice blends of the two and, you know, engaging with our clients on what suits their, their strategic need is the best way to go. I think. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting and helpful, Andy. So I guess I think what you're saying is you're not seeing something like batteries becoming its own asset class. You're not necessarily seeing charging points becoming an asset class. You would rather see it forming part of those broader mandates alongside even some of the old legacy operating fossil fuel type assets and have someone who can operate across all of those. But yeah, there, there are some examples, I think, aren't there, of the sort of the funds that solely focus on the newer stuff? Yeah, exactly. But even then, you know, where the funds, even with that new era, I, you know, I like to have the scope to change. So as we talked about, you know, the point when batteries as a standalone investment might become a little bit more core, there's a bit more certainty to be out revenue stream, want the managers to be able to then access that investment, but appraise it alongside other more established investments, just to ensure that you're getting the same risk return profile from something that's a little bit newer, perhaps you even get a slightly, slightly more attractive because it is a little bit newer. But, you know, I think having that scope within portfolios is quite useful as well. Yeah. So, Andy, we've spent a lot of time talking about the, understandably, talking about the climate transition and the, and the impact that that's had on the way that you're thinking about different assets. Any broader ESG-focused issues that we should be thinking hard about here and maybe giving a bit of a spotlight, which may have been covered up a little bit by the focus on climate? Climate is obviously really important at the moment. I, I think it's worth emphasising that. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of clients are really thinking about the risks in their portfolios and trying to make sure they understand how it's appraised when they buy investments. But climate is just one factor of sustainability and there are a lot of other ESG factors which are part of that. I think drawing it out with perhaps just, you know, just to think about infrastructure investments. I mean, I, I think that crosses a really diverse sphere, but it, it works, a lot of them work in property. So obviously real assets are sort of fundamental to to societies really. and they're the fabric really of how we live, work and play. And so ESG 
issues have to have a material factor within how they're managed. So looking at infrastructure, so they often have a significant impact on local communities. So the physical environment, so that's so managing that so that isn't detrimental to local communities is really important. Engagement with local communities obviously it impacts their day-to-day -day lives. Engagement programs with local communities is really important. Looking at customers, utilities, I think we sort of touched on that that earlier. Obviously having a direct contact with customers is really important, understanding that there's appropriate engagement with them, but also procedures for complaints. Cost of living, we've talked about, obviously through COVID, we saw a lot of the utility companies reach out to low-income families and try to help manage their concerns about paying their bills through a really difficult period. Infrastructure businesses are often really large employers, you know, thousands of people on the payroll. So developing an appropriate culture for those businesses is really important. Links between management and staff, health and safety, another huge important one. A lot of the, a lot of the infrastructure assets by their nature involve sometimes dangerous work. And so health and safety considerations is a huge key one. Cyber security is another great, another one that's becoming increasingly prominent. And we've seen over the last few years, you know, increasingly the impacts that can have on infrastructure assets. And if they're crucial, fundamental assets, you know, it can be really damaging. So there's a whole range of ESG issues which the managers look at and integrate within, first of all, their underwriting when they're looking at new investments, but existing investments. The great thing, and you know, I've, I've always advocated open-ended approach to infrastructure, unlisted infrastructure. That the reason, one of the reasons I like that is first of all, aligns the owners of the asset with the timeframe of the asset. So they ultimately enter into an asset all over the very long term. And so they are invested in its sustainability, including all the ESG issues. But the second thing is that in a lot of cases, they are the majority equity owners. That gives them a significant amount of influence. It gives them broad representation. It gives them the ability to control the governance of the business or certainly influence it, certainly by deciding on senior leaders of the firm. And all of that then feeds down into the management of ESG issues, that sort of governance feature. And indeed, climate change, you know, I think engagement to align is the big, big tool that, that infrastructure has. And so all these features, you know, are factored in and things that we explore when we're looking at this issue with managers. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's really struck me when I've spoken to you before about this, Andy, and you helped me understand the difference that, that open-ended makes there. And I suppose what you're, what's going on said there is that that's as opposed to closed-ended, where there's a finite time period over which people have these assets. And the suggestion is that they don't care so much about what happens basically once those those are out. There's an exit valuation that matters, but it's a, it's a very different mindset to an open-ended thing. I mean, I, I think the difference between open-ended and closed-ended in illiquids is really underappreciated and not discussed enough people often people just accept one or the other without saying what's actually better for investors and better for these assets but i think it is changing dan i mean i certainly I, infrastructure space i mean five years ago there were a handful of open-ended infrastructure funds i'm seeing loads more launched i, I think it's two reasons i think the vehicle this alignment point the ownership and ability to influence i think that's one one sort of factor but i think it's also just the opportunity set with you know we've already talked about energy transition a lot more opportunity out there i think managers can see the opportunity for them to make a difference with that kind of structure and you know i, th I think that that is a sort of trend within the investment in infrastructure sort of more open-ended structures yeah so Andy, I guess that neatly leads on to the kind of what trends you are seeing in these different asset classes. So you've mentioned, I'm going to forget this now. So you've mentioned the focus on construction, both within the property space and infrastructure. Clearly, we've talked about energy transition, we've talked about inflation, and you've just mentioned the move towards more open-ended. And you also talked, I think, in both asset classes about a move towards global 
Are there any other, I mean, that's plenty of themes to be keeping track of in these areas. Is there anything I've missed in that list that, that we should be drawing attention to here? If we're looking at property, I think there's a lot of structural themes in there, which are really interesting. I've covered these in previous podcasts. I won't do it to death. But what we've sort of seen is clients begin to favor more of a global approach to property. And part of it is diversification. I think great thing about property it's if you look across different markets around the world even in different cities and countries there are different impacts property is so much impacted by the supply and demand dynamics for particular sectors so that's one reason but the other thing is the opportunity and i think what's happened over the last few years and i think the experience through the covid pandemic has accelerated a lot of the trends is some big structural themes and property which create challenges but also create opportunities so e-commerce Big one, we've talked about the impact on retail. I think that's all pretty clear. But I think what's sometimes under-talked about, certainly outside of those that spend time on property, is just the impact that's had on logistics. So whilst we've seen fallen retail values massively, but on the flip side, logistics has grown hugely. It's been incredible, really. I mean, if you think of the UK market on its own, logistics investments returned, I think, anywhere between 30 and 40% last year. Right. And I'm just going to pause on that because it's a a significant number in a period where obviously retail was sort of flat, depending on the sector and offices were also, you know, a little bit of growth there, but not not too much. So that we got a 20, sort of close to 20% return in UK property last year, mostly driven by this particular theme. That's great opportunity there. And obviously seeing in the UK, but if you expand that out globally, I think there's still opportunity within that theme the impact of e-commerce looking globally. How we work with the concept of flexible living is a really interesting one. We're seeing a big polarization in office investments. I've already talked about the ESG impact of, of good quality office investments, but I think businesses recognize that having offices to attract employees, to help with collaboration, to help with the growth of business is really important, but it needs to be offices that are attractive to staff, so well amenitized, good locations, high quality, lots of meeting and all that kind of thing. And so it's those kind of investments which I think are attractive. Again, putting that theme on globally just grows out the opportunity safe compared with your looking in the UK. And then you've got more alternative sectors. That is another big theme. So investments addressing the, the lack of housing, residential, student accommodation, investments addressing the fact that we're aging populations. So, you know, residential for elderly people, themes around life sciences or technology hubs, all those kind of things, really interesting themes, lots of opportunities out there. In the UK, yes, but if you expand your opportunity set globally, I think it it can be quite attractive, particularly the US, which is quite dynamic, I think, in terms of newer deploying private capital and newer newer sectors of the market. And so that's that's a theme that I've seen clients allocating globally, I think, to access some of these really interesting opportunities in um, property. Yeah, and then perhaps following on from that, Andy, what sort of research projects are on your agenda and your team's agenda for the next the next 12 months? You've just listed a whole load of areas, but at the sort of fund level, is it more about how those fit into these global portfolios or, or, or what are you actually researching into? I think ESG, climate change and impact are the big focus areas across all our clients. So I've talked a lot about within property and infrastructure, this whole brown to green feature of in terms of the looking management. That's great. And we've seen property funds, we've seen infrastructure funds set net zero targets for 2050, great, set an interim target, excellent. Where I'm at now is, okay, guys, so tell me how you're gonna get there. So looking underneath the bonnet with an infrastructure company, are you setting net zero targets at the asset level? Great, okay, well, tell me what you're going to actually do to achieve that. What's the plan over the next 10 years? The next 10 years is crucial if we're gonna reduce carbon emissions with real assets to achieve our goals. There's a big issue with real assets, they're private investments with data. 
So what are they doing to improve and enhance the data collection across all their investments? The next area is ambition. So how do I know that the decarbonization plan of a building is ambitious enough? How does it compare with peers? Obviously, what we've seen within Listed is sort of a benchmarking exercise against using science-based targets. So I'd like to see these plans being approved, accredited by equivalent equivalent bodies. Then I want then I want to sort of be able to see the data to try and how am I going to monitor that you're following the pathway and that that's been successful. All that information I think has been worked on absolutely, but it is going to take time for it to for it to come out. I think scenario testing is another really important thing. So there is some scenario testing within all the managers that we like, but I I think it needs to be enhanced and evolved. You know, what are the risks if in a two and a half degree scenario? What are the risks in a four degree scenario? Show me that. What does that mean? What are you looking to do to weatherproof your investments to protect them from flooding? That kind of thing. It's a big, big exercise. I think managers are taking it seriously, but the frameworks I think are in place. And I think in terms of understanding new investments and understanding what they need to do with investments, I think that's fine, but it's more the detail and I want to see that's there I want to work on. So projects and property particularly, I think there's going to be a lot of information coming out over this year on what managers are doing and how we can hold them accountable and that's an area to focus on but you know similarly with infrastructure and i think this is going to be an iterative process over the the next few years as this aspect of the process becomes more prominent and the data collection really becomes much more improved yeah so andy as we start to wrap up today's episode what's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from today that's a really good question i mean i, I always come back to this one a little bit with real assets investments i think there's an underappreciation of what long term sometimes means <laughs> And particularly when we've got these big structural changes and a lot's going on, I think go into these investments with your eyes wide open. I think it's easy to say I have a, t- a long-term time horizon, but I think there has to be an understanding of what that means. It it means holding capital, understanding how they're going to manage these big structural risks over the next five, ten years and being happy with that. And essentially, there's a temptation to overreact for short-term news and noise. And I think I think that's just such a big feature of real assets investing. And rightly, and clients do want to know what's going on. They worry about a lot of the short-term stuff, but these are these are intended to be, you know, multi-year investments. And I think it's to always approach problems with that mindset. So Andy, well done for answering two questions in one just then. Do you have any recommendations for books, TV shows, podcasts for the listeners? I have to say, and it's it's been a little bit of a luxury, I with a lot of challenges in the world <laughs> recently, I have I've taken a, a guided decision to sort of use my reading time to focus on more enjoyment. So I, I read the June book series when I was younger and perhaps the provenance of the film, I, I've, I've sort of gone back to it. I remember loving it as a kid and sort of reintegrating that book within into my reading. So I, I've moved away <laughs> a little bit. I was reading, you know, books around climate change and those impacts but I you know given that so so much of my day job I think having that sort of separation is great so yeah I'm reading that book series at the moment and yeah getting a lot out of it great Andy it's been an absolutely brilliant conversation today covered so much thanks so much for your time it's been great great lovely to speak to you guys thanks Mary and Dan thanks Andy for coming and joining us yet again with fantastic insights as usual hope everyone enjoyed this week's episode that's it from us see you again next week take care Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.